So my, uh, my brother Danny was a senior in high school. It was a Saturday night. He was uh, getting ready to go out with uh, his friends. Uh, they were gonna go to the movies. And uh, he gets, uh, he was getting ready to go actually, and he gets a call from his, uh, his former CYO basketball coach. They had a game that night. My brother wasn't even on the team anymore. Uh, the coach called, and I guess they were one man short. So he says to my brother, hey, can you come on down? We'll throw a jersey on you, and uh, we'll be able to play. I mean, I don't, certainly not very legal, but uh, that's kind of what he was looking to get out of my brother. I guess he played the year before. So, you know, he really kind of felt like he couldn't say no, so... Um, he does. Because of that, he didn't go to the movies with his buddies. They went to the movies, and after, I guess on their way home, I think they went somewhere after the movies, there was an accident. The car flipped over. Bobby Azara was killed. Timmy O'Connor was uh, seriously, permanently disabled. So, you know, if my brother... If my brother's old coach doesn't call, Danny would have been in that car. I went to the funeral. I was an altar boy at the time. So I served it. And I'll never forget it. I guess it was probably the first funeral of that kind that I've ever been to. Somebody young, dying. So many people. So much emotion. And I knew him. I mean, I knew Bobby. He was in my house a million times. Anyway, uh, a couple of days later, I'm in town with my friends, and I, I meet this woman from the parish. We all knew her. She was kind of total, like, church lady. She was always up at the church. Everybody kind of knew her. So we see each other in town, and she stops, and she saw me at the funeral because I was serving the Mass. She also knew about my brother and what I just told you, how he was supposed to be there that night. And then she said this to me, and this is really what I remember, like, verbatim. She said to me, uh, there's your miracle. There's your miracle. And she was talking about Danny not being there. I was 13. And I remember thinking, like, miracle? That's a miracle? You better not mention that to Mr. and Mrs. Azara. So my family had a miracle that night, and the Azaras had this terrible tragedy. I just don't know if miracle, I just don't think miracle's the word. I just kind of knew, like instinctively, like something wasn't right about that. And I know her intentions were, were of course, good. But it's like, you know, don't put God's fingerprints on that night. That was just a sad, terrible night. And God had nothing to do with that night, good or bad. That church lady just seems so sure. You ever meet people like that? They're just, they're too sure. They don't seem to have an ounce of doubt or uncertainty about God in their lives. They've always got an answer. 
I think sometimes we try to answer questions that we should probably stay away from because we're not going to find a legitimate answer. Some people, I think, just can't really live with God uncertainty. It's all got to be clear. It's, got, it's like math. It's got to make sense. In one way or another, they make it make sense. And I think it's because they're scared to death of living with uncertainty. They need answers. You know what I think we do? Some people do is we just, they, they, run, they run desperately from doubt. It scares them. They panic. And then they come up with kind of silly answers to very, very complicated questions. And even a 13-year-old looks at it and goes, I don't, I don't think so. I remember my mom telling me, uh, my mom is the oldest of, of three. I had two uncles, uh, my mom's younger brothers. She really actually wasn't the oldest. She had, a, she had an older sister who was uh, stillborn. So my grandmother gave birth to this baby, full term, but the baby wasn't alive. They named her, her name was Anne. My grandmother used to talk to my mother about the fact that she had this oldest sister that she never knew. I remember my mom telling me that when she was a kid, she was in school, Catholic grade school. It's probably uh, 1940, 1942 maybe, Brooklyn. And this sister, a nun in her school, started to talk about limbo. It's what the church taught, that if somebody dies, if a baby dies, then they weren't baptized like my mom's oldest sister, they can't go to heaven. So they go to limbo. Because you could only get to heaven, said the church, if you were baptized. So this was like a dilemma. What do you do with a, a baby that wasn't baptized? So we came up with limbo. This idea of like these little babies floating around. But it's not heaven. It's not terrible, but it's not heaven. And my mom said she was like eight. And she was thinking, I don't think I believe that. That just seems crazy. Like, why would my sister not be in heaven? She never committed a sin. She should be like on the, have front row seats in heaven. Why would she not be there? Well, because we have a teaching that you got to be baptized to get to heaven. So we created this, like this limbo. It's like we needed an answer. Sometimes we just, just, just we're throwing out way too many answers. And we got to live, I think, with mystery. Not total mystery, but some. I think we think, or lots of us think, that to be doubtful, to question elements of our faith is like somehow disloyal. I'm betraying God or Jesus. Or even the people that taught me faith. I don't think it's disloyal. You know what I think we do, though? We got to figure out the stuff that's really important, kind of the deal breakers when it comes to faith, and then other stuff. Because you know what I think we do? It's like, it's like we got a bucket, and we throw all the stuff that we believe in as Christians and as Catholics into this bucket. 
But they're not all the same thing. Everything that gets thrown into the bucket is not of equal importance. Some of it is foundational, fundamental, deal-breaker stuff. Like Jesus and his life and his death and his words and his teachings and his resurrection and the sacraments, his mercy, his unconditional love. Like that's sort of like, well, all right, you know, if I don't, you know, if you don't really believe in Jesus, if you don't really believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then you know, no offense, but I'm not really sure kind of why we're here. Like, we gotta buy that. But there's lots of other stuff that's not nearly as foundational. And what people often do is it's like they take the stuff that's secondary that they're not so sure about, maybe they don't even agree with, they say, I don't buy this, so they bolt, they leave, they quit the church, they quit God. They just walk away. Think about family life. <laughs> I mean, aren't there things about our families that we don't completely love? Aren't there elements of, I mean, hey, think about those of you who are married, think about your in-laws. Don't say anything, but think about your in-laws. Like, aren't there some things about your in-laws' family that kind of make you crazy? Like, probably. Come on, there's things about our own families that are, you know, everybody's got some nutball in the family that's sort of a, a headache and maybe kind of a source of embarrassment. Like, our families aren't perfect. We know that. We don't ditch our families because of that. We don't change our last names because my family isn't perfect. We live with an imperfect family. How about being an American? Same point. I mean, I love being an American. I mean, I love being an American, and I'm grateful for it, but everything, not, our, our country is far from perfect. You don't have to look too far back to be like, ooh, man, this, we, weren't, we weren't at our best, like, I don't know, slavery, abortion. Like, it's not a perfect country. But I'm not renouncing my citizenship. I kind of live within an imperfect national identity. I don't quit. We're so, we're, people are so quick to quit the church, to quit faith, because there's elements of it that they're not understanding or believing in. Oh, by the way, about 30 years ago, the church came out with a, like a new updated catechism. Guess what wasn't mentioned in it? Limbo. Like, don't we don't really teach that anymore. Even, you know, the church evolves, like everybody and everything else. Listen to this. This is a quote from Steve Jobs, the Apple guy, founder. This is on what happens when, he says, when we doubt. He thinks doubting is a good thing, self-doubt. It's imperative, he says, it's imperative for leaders to keep revisiting their self-doubts in order to prepare and communicate better. Self-doubt keeps a leader grounded. It forces a leader to seek feedback. Leaders without self-doubt are susceptible to being ignorant and arrogant, and this causes them to disengage from the ground and how people feel. I'm not saying you have to accept, I'm not saying you have to accept what Steve Jobs says there, but I think there's something, I think there's something going on that's kind of true in that and with that. 
I heard doubt described this way. It's the gap between our current faith and perfect faith. The gap between our current... So it's sort of like, hey, here's, here's my faith right here. Great faith, perfect faith is up here. Well, the goal is to get faith that's up there, right? There, isn't it? I mean, we're not there yet. I'm here. Doubt, says this person, is like the gap, the distance. If I spend some time with doubt, I'm going to make my way to perfect faith. Unless I quit. Unless I walk away. You know, there was this guy, he was a uh, philosopher, a French philosopher in the 17th century. His name was Rene Descartes. Listen to what he said here. He wrote a lot about doubt and faith. He said, if you, if you want to be a real seeker of truth, it's necessary that at least once in your life you doubt as far as possible all things. I don't know. I'm not sure if I buy all of that. All things, doubting all the time. I, you know, if we're doubting 24-7, we're probably going to lose our faith. But there's a healthy place for it. Because it's just being honest. Doubt isn't unbelief. I'm not saying you got to believe Steve Jobs, and I'm not saying you got to believe that French philosopher. But I am saying this John the Baptist, we just heard from him. We got to believe him, we got to believe what he says. Look at what he does here in this gospel. He gets his, his people and he sends them to Jesus. He says, find out if he's the one. Ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? John the Baptist isn't even sure anymore. John the Baptist, that guy was sure of everything about Jesus. He was in everybody's face, saying, he's the one. Commit your life to him. Follow him. And now John is like, I don't, I'm not even sure. He said that when he was in jail. He was probably depressed. And he was probably questioning it all. I mean, who hasn't been there? Who hasn't been there? I don't mean literally jail, but like in a place in your life, a bad situation, a bad time. And you kind of are questioning it. Promises I made. The life I committed myself to. And I'm like on a, on a bad day or in a bad, bad chapter of my life, I'm like, I'm kind of questioning it. Should I, should I have taken this career path? Should I have married this person? Should I have become a priest? Should I have made this investment in, in whatever? We all ask those questions. Some people more than others, but we all ask them. I think if we're honest, look at Jesus' response to John the Baptist. You know what? He's not angry. He's not disgusted. He's not disappointed in his doubt. He says, among those born of woman, there is no greater than John. John the Baptist, John the doubter. You know, I think there's two, maybe two types of doubters. One is the people who just kind of walk away and they think they've found freedom because they've ditched all the rules. Okay, well, good luck. Let's check back in a couple of years and see how free you feel. But I think there's another category that's more legit, more sincere. It's somebody who has kind of walked away, but they're not comfortable with it. They're not happy about it. They know they're missing something. 
They want to believe, but they're just struggling. Well, my advice to those people, spend some time with John the Baptist. Spend some time with John the Doubter. What does John do? What does he do with his doubt? He asks questions. He doesn't walk away. Neither should we. You know that kind of definition? Doubt, it's the gap between our current faith and the perfect faith. The gap. You know like when you get on, a, on the railroad, the gap? You see a sign that says, mind the gap, a lot of times. Yeah, be careful of the gap. Get your foot in the gap and you're going to be in a lot of world of pain. It could be dangerous. But if you don't cross over the gap, you're not going to get on the train. You're not going to get to where you need to be. Same thing with faith. We need to spend time in doubt, not run from it, Spend time in it, and then we transcend it, and we come to a better place. This faith gap, it's not dangerous. Not if we're smart about it, and not if we're committed in the midst of the questioning. It's not really a gap. It's more like a bridge. A bridge to God. Take that bridge.